I made several trips over the years to the Ukraine to teach at a, a Bible college there. And I've always gone to the, in the weeks just right after Thanksgiving and then right before Christmas. Because I always like to be home in time for Christmas to celebrate it with my family and with my, my church family. And as you can imagine, it's typically much colder in Kiev in the Ukraine this time of year, especially the first two weeks of December, than it is in Houston. And so when I go to places like that, when I go to Kiev, I, I typically take along clothing that I seldom wear when I'm here. I've got the knit cap and the gloves and the, you know, the ski jacket that stays in the closet until the next time I go on, on a trip like that. If I was to wear the things in Houston that I wear in Kiev at the same time of the year, I'd be really, really hot. On the other hand, if I didn't take those things to Kiev, I'd be really, really cold. The last time that I was in Kiev, which was a couple, two or three years ago now, I came to the end of the two-week period when I was there, and it had snowed pretty much the whole time, which I kind of enjoy because we don't get that kind of weather here. I liked walking to and from the college and the snow sloshing around. But the snow started to intensify the day before I was to leave. Jim Dumas, I stayed at his apartment with him. He had already gone back to the States. I was there by myself. I did have communication with my wife, Cindy, through the Internet. And I was emailing her throughout the evening. The snow's getting heavier. The snow's getting a little heavier. And she, she's writing me back, don't panic. The flight will leave. And I'm, I'm hearing about flights that are canceled. I look outside. There's not a whole lot of traffic on the roads. And I'm thinking, I'm going to miss my flight. And if you miss a flight from Kiev back to Houston, it may be another couple of weeks before you can route yourself back the way that you need to be because all those flights are pretty, are pretty heavy. And so as the night went on, I started worrying considerably about my return flight. But at 4 o'clock in the morning at the appointed time, Sasha, my driver, showed up at the apartment, and I started loading all my stuff up in the, into his car. Now, what I did, since I was coming back from Kiev a quick short stop in Paris and then back to the States, I wore my suit, just like I have on today. I put my heavy heavy clothing into my luggage because I figured when I got back to Houston, it wouldn't be appropriate. I wouldn't need it. I'm just going to be outside for a few seconds, a few seconds getting into the car with Sasha, a few seconds as he drops me off at the gate to the airport. And so I thought, I don't really need my heavy clothing anymore. We get into the car, and Sasha had this old, old Russian model Sasha was a mechanic, and I didn't have a whole lot of extra time, and I sat down, and first thing Sasha does is look over at me and says, this is what you're wearing? And I said, yeah, that's what I'm wearing. I'm not going to be in the car a whole long time. And he just like said, okay. And then he, he, he turns the engine and goes, rawr, rawr, rawr. And I looked over and I said, Sasha. And he said, not to worry. It will start. <laughs> and I said, okay, literally, I'm not kidding you. He gets a hammer. He got a hammer out of his trunk, goes and starts beating something in the engine, and it started. If he wouldn't have been a mechanic, I would have never believed it. We, we head on to the airport. We're sliding all over the road. Sasha is a good driver, but he's a very aggressive driver, and since there weren't any other cars on the road, we were sliding all over the ice and snow. It was quite, a, quite an adventure. But once we got to the main road that goes to the airport, Kiev has a one road in and one road out of the airport. That's it. I've been on, been on it many times, so I recognize it when we got there. We get up there, and there's a big sign. You could, I can even tell what it said, and I, now I don't read Russian, not very well. And that was road closed. And uh, I said, what's the matter up here? He said, road is closed. I said, well, Sasha, my flight leaves here pretty soon. He said, not to worry. We find other route. And sure enough, he did. And he got me to the airport. I got checked in. I was, was in good shape. I was sitting in a nice, warm terminal. And then my flight is called. 
And in Kiev, what I had forgotten was the, the flights don't come right straight up to the terminal. This is that old kind of airport where you take a bus. You take a bus out to the airplane that's out on the tarmac somewhere, and then you get on the, the old-fashioned ramps. So I thought, well, this is going to be a little chilly. There's no heat in the bus. All the Ukrainians and Russians are looking at me like I'm some sort of American fool. Why are you just dressed like this? Don't you realize it's like four or five degrees outside and it's heavy snow, and you're, just in, you're, you're in clothing that's not appropriate for the circumstance. But I still thought it's going to be fine. Now, usually when they call those buses, they don't call the bus to the airplane until the airplane's ready to take you on. That's the rule. At least I thought it was the rule. It must not be the rule in Kiev. Because we got on the bus. I happened to be on the first one. There's two. I got on the first one. We go stand out there. There's probably 15, 16 people in front of me, 15, 16 people behind me. And guess what's not ready? The airplane. And guess what else started happening? The wind started blowing. So I've got four or five degrees. The wind's blowing. It's a blizzard out there. And I'm standing there in this type of clothing. And again, the Russians are looking at me like I'm some sort of fool because I'm standing there in clothing that's totally inappropriate for the circumstance. And I froze my you-know-what off. I mean, I just, I'm thinking, I'll never do this again. My coat is in the bag right over there. I can see the bag as they're loading the bags up, but it wasn't doing me any good. My dress for that particular moment was totally inappropriate. We've been blessed by our Creator with a human body that's totally appropriate for the environment in which we live. This body, true, it's a body of corruption. It's a body of sin. But we live in a fallen world, and for the time that we have right now, this body is appropriate for the circumstances in which we find ourselves. The reality is, this body is wearing out. As time goes on, with very few exceptions, we don't tend to get healthier. We tend to become less healthy. Things start to hurt. Tissues start to break down. And that's the way that it was designed from the very beginning. It wasn't, it wasn't original design, but that was the design from Genesis 3 on. Because of sin, we live in a fallen world with a body of corruption. As soon as Adam took the fruit from the hand of the woman, he began to die. He died spiritually immediately, and his body began to decay, and it began to die. There's a time limit on this body, and we can do certain things, perhaps, from a human perspective, to make that time limit a little bit longer. That's debatable. I personally believe that God's got our days numbered right now, and all that we can do with respect to exercise and, and good diet, which I think we should do, is, is make those days more enjoyable while we're here to make sure we're healthier during those times. But God's got an appointed number of days for us. But the point is, this body is wearing out as we speak. Now, I don't mean to be negative, and again, I'm just stating the obvious. You didn't need to come here to hear me today to tell you that this body is wearing out as we speak. We all know it. This body that we have right now is not appropriate for eternity. This body can't go on in eternity. Because it's wearing out. It's kind of like the second law of thermodynamics that says that the amount of usable energy in the universe is, is slowly running down. Ultimately, one day there won't be any. I don't know how long that will be, but that's the second law of thermodynamics. This, the same type of things that work in your body right now. Am I making you feel old? I don't mean to be. Some of you look depressed. Actually, I've got good news. This is all leading to something really, really good. So I want you to hang in there with me. This might be the most important sermon you've heard in weeks and weeks and weeks. There's good news at the end of it. 
But the body we have right now is not appropriate for heaven. We can't go on in heaven with a body like this. And our passage today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 reveals that just as God provided us with a body that was appropriate, that is appropriate for our circumstances in which we find ourselves now for this temporary earthly existence, He will also provide us with a body that's appropriate for our eternal heavenly existence. You see the point? We can't go on in heaven with this body. It won't work because this body's wearing down. And even if we can make this body last a million years, it's still going down and eternity is a lot longer than a million years. Are you following? Our passage today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49, tells us that just like he gave us a body that's appropriate for right now, he's going to give us a body that's appropriate for eternity. It's got to be a different body. This one won't work. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out, that this body won't work for heaven. But there are some in Corinth that apparently denied the possibility of the resurrection of the believer because they can see the obvious. They say, well, this, this body won't last for eternity. So they said there must not be a resurrection. They're missing the point. The point is that this is, while this body will go into eternity, this body is going to be transformed into something that's appropriate for eternity. Just like I had a suit on in four-degree weather and the wind's blowing 20 miles an hour and it's snowing on the tarmac in Kiff, that was a set of clothing, but it wasn't a set of clothing that was appropriate for the environment that I was in. This body that you have right now is not appropriate for eternity. That's why you're not taking the body as it is right now. As it is. You're not going to take it into eternity. You'll take this body, but it'll be transformed into something that's appropriate for eternity. The key word there is transformation. This body is corruptible. Our heavenly body, our resurrection body, is incorruptible. In this passage, in verse 35, a skeptical question will be raised. Then in the next three verses, Paul's going to answer the question by way of an agricultural illustration. That's followed by an astronomical illustration. And then there will, there will follow a discussion of the radical differences between the body that we occupy right now and the body that, that will be in its transformed state that we call a resurrection body. You can call it your heavenly body if you want to, but the resurrection body. And finally... Paul teaches that this gap, or the radical differences in the two bodies, will be bridged by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the one that's going to affect this change between the two bodies. Now let's read our passage so you see what we're speaking about here in verse 35 of chapter 15. Paul says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you, which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps, of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. For there is one flesh of men and another of beasts, and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. 
It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. The questions that are raised right away, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body will they come, might have been a serious question that had been raised in Corinth, or it could have been a series of questions that were designed to mock Paul as he spoke of the resurrection. Because the people in Corinth, it seems the people in Corinth, believe themselves to be highly intellectual. We've seen that all throughout 1 Corinthians. And Paul, at various times, is having to point out to him, you're not quite as great of a thinker as you think you might be. I personally believe that these were mocking questions that were asked to the apostle. But the scene here with Paul saying, you fool, he calls them fools. Now, that's not really politically correct in the classroom today. But take the terminology out, and it's almost like what's happening here is a wise college professor is correcting a student that has asked a question that's designed not to gain information, but designed to make the professor look bad. You know, there are questions like that where students try to challenge you. And I think what Paul's doing is he's taking the role now of a wise professor. When in verse 36 he says, you fool, you're not thinking properly. May I paraphrase, you're not nearly as smart as you think you are. You haven't thought this through. The body that's resurrected will not be the same type of body. It's not going to be the same type, even though the individual is the same person. It's still you. Just as the body that went into the tomb was the body that was resurrected in Jesus' case, the body that you reside in right now will be the same body that you'll reside in in eternity. But, But it will be a transformed body with characteristics that are appropriate for eternity. Among the most significant differences between this body that we have right now and the one that we'll have in eternity is that the resurrection body will not be stained by original sin. That's what's causing this corruption right now. No matter how many vitamins you take, and I hope you do, no matter how much you run or you walk or you exercise, and I hope you do, it's not going to get rid of the old sin nature. And that's what's causing us to look different than we did when we are 32 or 33 or whatever age it may be. The body's not stained by original sin, and the body that we will have in eternity is immortal. It's not mortal. This body, no matter how long we live, is going to die someday. The resurrection body won't. So you see why it's appropriate for eternity? If we're going to live for eternity, we've got to have a body that's immortal. And we've got to have a body that's not stained by original sin because that's what makes us, that's what makes this body in a constant state of corruption. We are being corrupted. Now, one could legitimately ask, how can this happen? How will this happen? The Apostle Paul's body, for example, he talked about resurrection. The body of the Apostle Paul has long since turned to dust, it's long since become a a part of the ground again. So how might that happen? 
God, as omnipotent creator, has the ability to regather all the molecules that make up your present body and transform them into your perfect heavenly body. He's got the ability to do that. More on that perfection in just a moment. More about the specifics of the resurrection body in a moment. But to make his point here, Paul immediately, in verses 36 through 38, moves to an agricultural example, which was territory that was familiar to everybody at the time that he wrote. Maybe not to us today, but at the time he wrote, everybody would have been familiar with this example. The seed of grain is not going to transition until you plant it. It's got to die. It's got to be planted. What comes up from the ground is different from what was planted, but it still came out of that which was planted. And Paul's primary point is God is the one who affects the transition from seed to plant. He takes care of that process. Now, one might ask, well, what happens to people that are buried at sea? What happens to people that are blown up in an explosion? Their molecules are everywhere. They're all over the place. Listen, God is big enough that he can reconstitute those molecules back into you, your your resurrection body. Don't fret about that. Some people have a big problem with, well, what happened if my loved one was cremated rather than buried? I hate to tell you, if you go back after enough period of time, and even if a body was, was buried eventually that body's going to turn to dust too with enough time. Don't fret. God can take those molecules and put them back into your resurrection body. But that last point is so important. It's God that does it. It's not solely a natural process. The growing of grain is not solely a natural process. God's involved in that, according to the Apostle Paul. He's ultimately the one that transforms the seed into a plant, and he's ultimately the one that's going to give you a new resurrection body. He minds deeper then in the next couple of verses, and he says, Just as there are different kinds of flesh for humans and animals and birds and fish, so there are different bodies for earthly living and for heavenly living. Verse 41 points out, for example, that something very few of us here today would appreciate, except for maybe a couple if you're, a, if you're a rocket scientist at NASA, you would probably appreciate that there are different glories of the different stars. And we don't joke too much about that because we have two rocket scientists that, from NASA that go to church here. We, if you're talking about people being as smart as a rocket scientist, we've got two of them that, that are members of Pine Valley. But aside from that, it, it might not be something you think about a lot, that there are different glories and different stars. But Paul brings this up in verse 41. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon. Another glory of the stars, star differs from star in glory. And then he goes on to say in verse 42 that there are differences in the resurrection body, just as there are differences in the stars. Now, they may all look the same to us in a night sky, but there are differences in those stars. There are differences in the stars. There's differences between this earthly body and the resurrection body. Now, what are some of those differences? Well, first of all, this body is mortal. It means it can die. The resurrection body is immortal. It won't die, ever. In the eternal state, there's no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. That's one concern you don't have in eternity. It's dying. It's not there anymore. Any kind of death is not there anymore in eternity. This body has a sinful nature. In eternity, the resurrection body will have no sinful nature. And briefly, that means that the, source of, the primary source of temptation of sin is not there in heaven. Satan's not there in heaven. He's one source. Satan's system is not there in heaven. That's the second source. And our old sin nature is the third source is temptation to sin. There's no temptation to sin in heaven. We won't know what to do with ourselves. There's no confession of sin in heaven, ever. 
because you're not going to sin in heaven. You still have free will in heaven, but you don't sin. Now, I, don't, I, I can't say I understand that totally, but I know it's the reality. That's what the scriptures tell us. It's one of the best parts of heaven, I think. This body is weak. The term could perhaps mean declining. The heavenly body is strong, which I believe is meant to be understood as maintaining its vitality. Then in verses 44 through 49, we see that if there's a natural body, there has to be a spiritual one. God is going to make sure that we have that which is appropriate for eternity. In verse 44, the second half, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now one, one brief note on that. There are people that are out there today that like to deny the historical reality of a literal Adam. They say, well, Adam was just a, an ape-looking figure that, that we've just named that, just one of many. That's not accurate, not accurate whatsoever, either Old Testament or New, certainly by the time we get to the New Testament. Paul, for example, makes the case that all sin came down through one man, Adam, a literal Adam. But even in the Old Testament, you have genealogies that start with Adam. In Luke, you go back to Adam. Now, Adam was a real person. And the first Adam became a living soul. The last Adam is the one that gives this resurrection body. We all descend physically from Adam. We all receive our resurrection bodies courtesy of Jesus Christ, the last Adam. And it's in that order, of course. You've got to have this body before you're going to get a resurrection body. First, the body that's appropriate for mortal, earthly living, and then the body that's appropriate for immortal, heavenly living. Now, there are a few questions that are legitimate here. But one question that people have from time to time is, what is the current state of those that we know and love that are in heaven right now, that have already died? Are they asleep? The, the scriptures use that metaphor sometimes. Well, that's no, there's no such thing as soul sleep. Jesus tells the thief on the cross that was repentant and they had come to him, today you'll be with me in paradise, not at the resurrection, not at a future resurrection. Today you'll be with me in paradise. At the Mount of Transfiguration we see Moses and Elijah there in a, in a, in a, a living state. With respect to what kind of body we have in heaven that, or those have in heaven that have gone on before us, it's my view that it's unwise to be dogmatic where Scripture's not dogmatic, where Scriptures give limited revelation. But there is sufficient disclosure in the Scriptures for us to deduce or to conclude that those who have died, having placed their faith in Jesus Christ, do have some form of interim body, the body that's between this earthly body and the, one, the permanent body of resurrection. And that interim body is appropriate for that interim period. We do know some things about this interim body, but very little. We know that the person is recognizable. We know that they can converse and that they're in utter bliss, enjoying the presence of God at this very moment. Whatever loved one you're thinking of right now, and I know you probably all have someone in mind, that's already in heaven with the Lord, you can know that they have some form that is recognizable. Not the final form, but some form that's recognizable. That they are blissful. They are happier than they've ever been. Their happiest day here on this earth. 
They're enjoying the presence of God. We also know they can converse. Now, they may be able to do a whole lot of other things, but we know at least those things. The exact form is not disclosed, but passages like Luke 16, for example, Lazarus and the rich man, the account of the Mount of Transfiguration, these indicate there, there is some interim form that is recognizable. It's just not the final form. I wish I could tell you more about the interim body, but the Scriptures just don't tell us. So I'm not going to be dogmatic where the Scriptures are not. But I can tell you there's enough information that I can say that there does appear to be some interim form. We're not just spirits without any embodiment at all in heaven after we die but before the resurrection. The second question that's often asked when we bring up things like resurrection body is aside from immortality and the fact that there's no sin nature, do we know anything else about the resurrection body, what it might look like, how it might function? Well, I think that we do know now, this is resurrection body, not interim body now, but we know from Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, that our resurrection body will be like Christ's resurrection body. That's the biggest clue that we have, which means, among other things, we can look at what Christ did in resurrection, and we can assume that we'll be able to do the same things, at least the things that not, were not part of his deity. We can eat. That's going to be an interesting one. I don't have all the answers as to why we eat or what we'll eat. I think the hostess company will be back in business in eternity. <laughs> it's one of the tragedies of the last, uh, last year that they went out of business. I can think of a couple of other ones, but that ranks near the top. We eat. We're going to converse with others in eternity. We're going to be capable of travel of some sort. I'm not exactly sure what kind of travel, but I do know that in Jesus and his resurrection body walk right through a closed door. Right through a solid closed door. So the atomic nature of our resurrection body is going to be a little different. We know from the book of Revelation that we will be capable in eternity of perfect worship. Won't that be great? Because even though the best worship we've ever had on this earth is not perfect worship. But in eternity, we're going to worship in this resurrection body in a perfect way. Not only will, will, will we be perfect but the whole worship service will be perfect. Can you imagine the heavenly choir? It's going to be phenomenal because all of us will have perfect voices in eternity with which we will sing to our Creator in unhindered fellowship. Boy, what a great thing that will be. Some wonder about what a parent age will have in eternity. Will babies look like adults? Will seniors look like they were when they were younger? Many speculate, and I think it's more than just speculation, that our resurrection bodies will probably look around 30, 32, 33 years old. Something like that. Because that's the age of Jesus' resurrection body. Now, that's not something we can prove, but I think it can be deduced fairly well that we'll, be, we'll have that ageless form at that particular point. It's interesting. We said we'd be recognizable even though we'll, we'll all be about 30. Now, that means somebody that's, that goes to be with the Lord when they're two or three right now is going to be recognizable in their resurrection body. That means people that go to the Lord in their senior years is going to be recognizable. The other day at church, I pulled out some pictures that I brought here today, and I showed them to some people in, at the Wednesday night service. And I asked them if they could identify the people in these pictures. And they looked very hard and close, and, and every single one of them, at least on Wednesday night, Every single one of them said, no, I don't recognize either of the people in, the, in those pictures. And I said, that's me. That's me when I was 31 years old. That's me right there. I can recognize me. I'm that one right there. And Gary Phillips, my good friend, who's back in the room now, I'm glad he's finished with the 
Judy said the usher, he said, well, boy, you, you put on a lot of weight since then, haven't you? <laughs> well, yes, I have. And somebody else said, well, you, your hair's turned gray. I said, yes, it, it has. But guess what? Even though you might not be able to recognize my picture <laughs> from when I was 31, 32 years old in resurrection body, we're all going to recognize everybody. It's going to be an absolutely wonderful thing. Just as God has provided us with the appropriate body for this environment, God's going to provide us with an appropriate body for the eternal environment. 